Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 62 of the Hyperthesis Podcast. I'm Liam. I'm Patrick. I'm Feely. And I'm Hannah. As you've heard, we have a very special guest today, um, Hannah Krivich. So Hannah completed her Bachelor of Science in Cellular and Molecular Biology at Mount Royal University in Calgary and is currently a PhD student at McMaster University working for Dr. Michael Reinstetter. Did I say his last name right? Yeah. Okay. In my accent, at least. Um, I love Michael. Uh, Anyway, um, so you, you work for Michael in his laboratory where you guys study membrane and protein dynamics. And specifically, Hannah's research focuses on using red blood cell membranes to deliver molecules to specific targets throughout the body. Um, the carriers were designed using molecular dynamic simulations to understand the drug membrane interactions. And currently, Hannah's working to trying to de- you're working um, to try and deliver a protein across the blood brain barrier, right? Correct. Awesome. Um, But before we pelt you with questions about your work and your past and all that fun stuff, um, does anyone have an intro topic they'd like to discuss? I have an interesting intro topic. I feel like we've mentioned this topic before, but haven't really delved into it too much. But last night I was curling with my department grad students and teaching them how to curl. Uh, For a bit of background, I curled in university. And that's about it. So apparently the physics of curling and how a curling stone curls is very controversial. So for those that aren't familiar with the sport or have never seen it or done it before, essentially it's played on ice that has pebbles on it, uh, pebbles of ice, so little raised bumps of ice. And this you have this very heavy piece of granite that's shaped in kind of like a flat circle, almost like a hamburger bun shape. And on the bottom of this stone, again, it's pure granite, you have this essentially ring that makes contact with the surface of the ice, and then everything else doesn't make contact with it. And you have a handle on top so you can put a little spin on it as it goes down this very long piece of ice. And the whole thing is called curling because since you put a little bit of spin on that stone, it will move one way or another depending on the way it's spinning on the ice. And so there's a lot of strategy involved, more than people think, and it's not just banging rocks together, but the physics of the curling itself. So as the stone moves and slowly turns, either clockwise or counterclockwise, it will veer off in one direction or another. Again, depending on which way you're spinning it. If you're spinning it clockwise, it will go to the right. If you're spinning it counterclockwise, it will go to the, to the left. And this is completely unintuitive because if you were, to, say, to take a mug or a plate or a bowl that has, again, that small ring of contact around its surface, uh, its bottom surface, and you spin it and push it forwards, it's going to go in the exact opposite direction that it's spinning. So if you spin, say, a mug with a little ring on the bottom clockwise, it's going to go to the left, whereas if you spin it counterclockwise it's going to go to the right curling rocks do the exact opposite thing and we still don't know why there are two main theories about it the first is that the granite ring is not 
a perfectly smooth surface. And so that ring will create essentially little lines that are carved into the ice and it will follow those lines. Uh, so this came from a university in Sweden in which they were able to essentially take sandpaper to make artificial scratches in the ice and push curling rocks with no spin along those the ice with those scratches and they went in that direction. Well, I think the the only force that would veer it off course or off the straight line course is the friction, right? So normally, if you have the balance of friction from the top and the bottom of the what is called, I don't know, rock, and then nothing would move to either side because, like, if you are an ideally no friction surface, it would be like it they cannot move to the left or right. And then it really means maybe the the bottom part because if you t- turn clockwise the bottom part would the friction would give fall to the right maybe that wins somehow right that's have to well it has to be a friction so i'm not i'm not sure well like you said we're not sure why um the bottom friction dominates well if if, if you're for the idea of friction and and the fact that it's all friction based instead of creating these nice little scratches and grooves in the ice then you're part of the second group that's Contributing the to the scratch and grooves are so friction. It's so based well, on friction. Well, it's yeah. all based on friction, of course. But in this case, what you're talking about sounds more like what the second group is proposing, and they're from the University of Northern British Columbia. And what they propose is that there's essentially uneven melting happening. So as that granite ring goes along the surface of the ice, the front part melts just a little bit more of the ice as it travels along than the back part. And because of that melting, it sees a difference in friction. And so as it's spinning, it's kind of getting essentially pulled one way or the other, or it's forcing itself one way or the other. So instead of using the theory of scratches, and it's just falling scratches that are made by the stone, this one is saying that uneven melting is causing this difference, causing it to curl. And now the really interesting... Almost like a same argument, almost, because like, where, how do you create scratches? Well, you melted the ice. <laughs> but these are like actual permanent scratches in the ice, whereas the other method, it's just like very subtle melting of mainly those little pebbles on the ice that are on top. So one is like actual grooves. The other one, it's essentially untouched, if you will. Do you think that those, if you're going on the theory using the scratches, would the permanent scratches then interfere with um, throws that happen later on. Yes, and we actually do have that happening in curling, where like you can get a bad piece of ice, and so you you try and avoid it sometimes because it will cause it to curl quite a bit, or it will cause it to slow down quite suddenly. And one thing I will mention is that the brooms heads that people use, so people sweep with their brooms in front of it. Uh, they've changed how they're made now, but beforehand you used to scratch the ice with them a lot more, and you can control how much it curled. So you could actually influence where it was going to end up. I thought, yeah, I was going to say, like, I thought they have, like, the, the, the groomer. I don't know what they call it. Like, you know, the one that uses the broom that sweeps the, um, the ice to make it smoother. I don't know what they actually, um, the purpose of that. Oh, I mean, I get the purpose, but I don't know if they're making, like, a polish to make it smoother or to make it scratchy in a certain way. So it used to be, like, the goal was to make it a little bit scratchy, but 
the overall goal of the brooms, they're called, is to essentially melt the surface right in front of the uh, curling stone so that it goes further. So as you melt it, it's a less friction full surface um, and, and it's more frictionless. So it kind of melts it, you get to go further. And so that could be the difference of winding up in the circle at the other end or outside of it. So it's like waterboarding, right? You, you try to make a little thin water. Like when you drive, you're not supposed to go too fast when it's drains because you could, uh, instead of using friction to go forward, you're just gliding on, uh, on the water. I think that's called hydroplaning. Waterboarding oh, is something oh, completely different. Is it? <laughs> yeah, you know, hydroplane and, and, and the word waterboard has almost the same root. Water and hydroplane and board. I'm not that far off. <laughs> I'm going to go out and make a wild proposal and say that group one and two are probably both right, and it's probably both, honestly. Um, probably both are having some small effect. I have no... I have, that's my gut feeling, which is not very scientific, but I'm going to stick with it. I mean, uh, we'll see what happens. It, it seems like they're different enough that one is more likely to be true than the other but chances are both mechanics are happening but at different times and in different places but really interesting and if you do have a chance to go curl try it out it's fun it's the extreme canadian sport i've only curled once and i've played hockey a lot so i can skate but being on that weird very smooth yet bumpy ice is hard to stand i found um opposed to like regular flat ice it's it's a good feeling though. I don't know. It feels like nice ice. Anyway, um. So so did you find this in a paper or I can't remember if you said that or not. Yeah. So there were like two papers published by these opposing universities. So one in Sweden, one in British Columbia. Were they, uh, and then were there's they... also been a lot of like articles written about it. There was a Smarter Everyday video about it a while ago. So lots of information about the controversy. Did they do an experiment and figure out which was right? I know, uh, they, no, I know they haven't, but, but they've, they've done experiments for each one and both work. Hmm. Okay. More. Yeah. One so, thing about yeah. curling is that it reminds me of the, this, this is French sport. The pétanque is the same principle. You try to throw stuff is like throw a metal ball and try to get to the center or like that, that mark. Right. And when I saw curling for the first time, I was like, Oh, it's like ice version. You know, when you hear about hockey, a lot of people would think it's like a field hockey, but every Canadian would think of ice hockey. We should not <laughs> field hockey and ice hockey. And then the, we have this curling, a version of baton, which I think very more, more popular along, among elderly uh, <laughs> in the East. So, oh, that is interesting. Shall we move on to the main topic? I think so. All right, Hannah. So we gave you a little blast of curling, I guess, <laughs> and now completely to change topics. Um, could you tell us about what you do right now for your research and your work a little bit? Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as Liam said, that I'm, our lab group is mainly studying membrane and protein dynamics. And our group really specializes in red blood cell membranes. And um, our group has actually developed a way where we can take 
blood from a volunteer and we can really strip it of all the inner components such that we only have the membrane left. And so this was used um, to study a lot of the properties and dynamics of. But what my uh, specific project is, is trying to use this red blood cell membrane to deliver uh, drugs um, to specific targets in the body. And so in my first year, so I started as a master's in this group, I was trying to deliver a very potent antibiotic um, that would be toxic to bo uh, the body otherwise. Um, to a specific strain of bacteria. And so a lot of that was done, uh, I had to start off by optimizing the membrane. And so we can change properties of the membrane, such as the charge and fluidity, if we, um, if we're, uh, by introducing like the lipids with different charges. And so my antibiotic was positively charged. So I really, I tried to make my membrane more negative. And um, I, was also able to attach uh, targeting molecules on the outside such that I can get, um, I can deliver the load to a specific target. And so now in my current project, I'm using this exact same system, but I'm just trying to deliver um, a specific protein across the blood brain barrier. So are these all experimental work or is it like simulation and theory? So um, it is a combination of both my work is uh, my work specifically is more dominated in the experimental side and wet lab side, but we also do run computer simulations in house. Uh, we run molecular dynamic simulations using Romax, if you've ever heard of it. It's uh, very specific to membrane simulations, <laughs> membrane and protein simulations. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like um, biology console almost is, um, I know you heard of console, it's like more engineering type. So I want to add a little bit more into the background of, of you know, your field because we are talking like to three physicists who have very little knowledge of um, red blood cells. In my head, when I heard red blood cells, I hear, well, I mean, I see the concave shape of that little, you know, um, ellipsis. The, and the plate, one the thing platelet I remember, or whatever. Yeah, the, yeah. No, I think I thought platelet. A little bit. Well, I don't know, but um, that little like disc. I think of a red blood cell. I think yeah. of that disc with that concave shape. Like yeah, you with said. the dimple thingy. And one thing I remember from high school, like cell biology, was there's this uh, phospholipid bilayer that that you know do you transport protein and nutrients into the cell. Does the red blood cell have that too, or is it a different mechanism? Red blood cells, I would, they have a different type of, well, uh, as far as if they're transporting molecules in and out, I'm not entirely certain of the, the details itself. They don't have a nucleus, and so um, less likely, but they do have uh, a phospholipid bilayer, of course. Um, but they have also different properties than other types of cell membranes. Uh, for red blood cells in particular, they are abundant in cholesterol, which adds uh, rigidity to the overall structure, um, but they're also really flexible and elastic. And so uh, the properties of their membrane allow them to deform as they travel through different types of um, diameters throughout the, the circulatory system. But they do also have proteins on the outside such as you, um, the proteins that identify right, blood groups, 
also um, proteins that provide immune protection as well. Well, I'm going to want to a little bit clarify on the terminology a little bit. When we say um, lipid, it usually means fat, right? And well, so for the audience kind of know, it's not, well, usually fat, there are fatty acids. Usually they're like polymer that made of these kind of cell walls and in our bodies have these cell walls made mainly of, I think, fat, fatty acids that are hydrophobic, if I remember correctly. So things are really hard to pass through. They have this bunch of holes that it, well, quote unquote, holes that it transport through, which is really bringing me back like eight or nine years since I learned about this. So I hope I didn't get anything too wrong. Um, so go to my next question, I guess. So this type of um, molecular dynamics, well, I, I do a little bit of MD. So there's like what type of interaction terms or what type of interaction you put it into your system when you simulate it? Is it similar to in physics, we have like Leonard Jones potential or is that any kind of potential you use? Um, most of them can be simulated with the Leonard Jones potential. Um, at least that's the ones that my system was using, of course, you might have to modify it, um, but Leonard Jones is what um, mine uses. So uh, just in terms of what you're trying to do, so you said that you're trying to use these red blood cells, and, or, or at least the membranes of red blood cells, uh, from what it sounds like, try and get proteins in them, and then in particular, look at how you can get those proteins uh, into the blood, blood-brain barrier. So are you able to describe the blood-brain barrier quickly? And then I know like red blood cells, they don't really go through that barrier. It's just more so the smaller like oxygen and carbon dioxide and other important, I guess, ions that will tra- traverse that barrier. But I guess what's the goal once the red blood cell sacks, if you will, get to that point? Yeah. Um, so... I mean, the goal with delivering, oh, I'll start with what the blood-brain barrier is. So the blood-brain barrier is um, essentially this layer of cells, this endothelial layer is what we say, and it's very selective to what can pass into the brain. Um, as you said, very small molecules, mostly ions, are able to passively diffuse. Other molecules uh, require some sort of transport mechanism. This could be um, using an actual transporter molecule that basically takes this molecule and then just facilitates its delivery onto the other side. And some, uh, sometimes it could be guided by a receptor protein interaction as well. And the reason why we, we want to get drugs across the blood-brain barrier is because, well, um, that's actually a really big problem with um, a lot of drugs that are designed to treat different brain diseases, for example, like neurodegenerative diseases, is that, I mean, they could have the potential to be successful, but the major limitation is is that we can't get them into the brain because it's so selective. And so uh, the goal is to really try and find a way to get these drugs across. So I just add a point of clarification to when we said the the Leonard Jones potential for those who don't know, Leonard Jones potential are quite um, powerful. It's really simple, but it mimics very common feature in nature where if you're too close or close enough, um, particles would repel each other. But in around medium to moderate distance, 
if you it, it attracts each other, but once it's like really far away, it has no interactions at all. So it's very common, right? It's too close, it's, it repels. So I, I can see how it's used in many physical systems and it's good to see they use in biophysics too. No, definitely. There was a colloquium talk the other day. It showed up in as well, I think. I think you were there, Hannah. I forget. Oh, yeah. What was did, that one? Yes. Um, Ultra-cold atoms. That was the topic. Yes. I, yes, I should have remembered that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, ultra-cold <laughs> atoms. The atom. one thing you do. <laughs> uh, I do too many different fields. Um, but yeah, Leonard Jones potential is everywhere. It's good. You, you mentioned... Um, so when you test things out, you need blood, of course, and you've developed all these techniques to get rid of, I guess, kind of like, I don't want to call it the garbage, but you, you, you kind of remove everything and you're left with this cell membrane, this outer layer of the blood cell. Um, you guys, you just take your own blood or do you use like mouses or rats or <laughs> like your friends? <laughs> I mean, I guess this really brings to life that research involves your blood, sweat and tears. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yes, um, like when I first started, it required a lot of, yeah, I, I, I did donate some of my own blood and then uh, we also had other lab members as well. I actually got trained in phlebotomy so that I could take other, um, lab mates blood and then we could kind of, yeah, use each other's, um, and uh, it, th that was really, um, that was kind of the best way at the time, just because the sample is more fresh and uh, you know where it came from. Uh, for research purposes, if you were to get blood from the bank, they don't really uh, give you the best quality for obvious reasons because patients need them. So you usually don't know uh, where that blood came from. Um, now I am... Uh, we have collaborators in biology and so we're running mouse experiments and so of course those have to come uh we can order mouse blood um so that's helpful in that end yeah it's gonna it makes a lot of sense that you would just use your own blood for a lot of reasons honestly well when you have to deal with like human blood and such if it's not from you um do you have to deal with like ethics committee like you have to write those like ethics form on document because you're dealing with um human um i don't know um components uh so yes there is ethics approval but that's also something that my supervisor takes care of um for people that donate it's always a volunteer action so um, and it's usually, it was always with people in the lab. And so it was okay then. I think we were all in shock. And, uh, <laughs> and our research, you never have to use our, um, our blood, sweat, and tear directly. So that is interesting. Like, because I wonder, because most people's blood are the same, um, except when you have like conditions and such. So I guess it's pretty um, replaceable. Um, so... When you work with with blood a lot, um, should we? I wonder if we should go into more of a technical stuff. So, what exactly do you do for your research? Then, so when you said you try to um, study how to get or drugs or substances into the blood, um, what is a common hypothesis of like? Oh, are are things usually go bipolar? 
polarity or is it more like uh, try to get it to diffuse into the red blood cells or get it into the plasma? Like I'm not sure how the um, what's called distribution mechanism really work. Is it more effective to get it to lash onto the cell? What is the general consensus? Um, so part of it, I think, depends on the mechanism of interaction between the drug you're trying to um, trying to deliver and its target membrane. Um, for a protein I'm trying to deliver into the brain, I want it to uh, completely cross the blood-brain barrier and be released into the other side. Um, but for the bacteria, um, it acts. It's a membrane active drug. So the drug, the antibiotic that I was trying to deliver, created pores in the bacterial membrane that causes leakage, and that's how the bacteria dies. And so for that, I was trying to deliver directly to the membrane, um, to the bacterial membrane. And so when I designed these red blood, when I designed the red blood cell carriers um, to optimize it for loading. I look at the properties of that drug molecule. So uh, for the antibiotic, for example, um, because it was positively charged, I was trying to make the, the membrane overall be more negatively charged. And, um, and using computer simulations, we also saw that the actual antibiotic does interact with the red blood cell membrane itself. It kind of um, sort of sits on top of the red blood cell membrane. And then when you, then that way you can deliver it directly to the bacterial membrane. And it's because the, that antibiotic is so small, it also has the ability to diffuse out and then um, reach that target membrane. So when you do these simulations or I mean theory, do you have to consider what happened um, from like the liver and kidneys? Because I thought they kind of filter the blood too, right? So you should... Do you consider like, oh, what type of molecules would have to go past them but not get filtered out? I mean, there's a lot of things that you, you can consider, but then, of course, that starts to make your simulation more and more complex. And so for these simulations, I'm, I, would, I was only sticking to, you know, membrane and drug interaction. So it almost sounds like you're trying to make like, I don't know, a, an artificial addition to the immune system. Because like just having these proteins sit on the outside of a blood cell and then interact with a, a bacteria. Just thinking about how the immune system works, that kind of what some of those cells do too, where they interact with the bacteria and then just kind of split it open to make it leak and sometimes just kill it like that. So it's very interesting to hear the similarities. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't think about it like that. <laughs> not, to, not to come back to blood again, but did you learn a lot about your own blood <laughs> studying it? I feel like I would have. I feel like I would really try to be like, oh, I wonder what my blood looks like and start doing things to it and see what happens. I mean, we've all looked at it like under the microscope and stuff. Um, I learned that there's a difference in yield between some people in the lab. So specifically like males and females, I think, um, uh, in terms of how much material you can get out. Um, but after a while, like, no, I just... Yeah. <laughs> You're used to Yeah, it. after a while. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what the process is. So from extracting the blood and um, just having it straight from your body to actually preparing it, uh, these red blood cells, and then testing how things work, what's the, what's the process, especially for 
you said you're just using the red blood cell membrane. So are you emptying the red blood cell uh, in a way? And what's the process for that? Yeah, so red blood cells, um, they actually, they have hemoglobin inside. So that's what gives them that red color. And um, well, we're trying to put things into the membrane. So we need to get that hemoglobin out. And when we take these red blood cells, uh, we basically have to burst them temporarily. Um, and we do this using salt. And then you just wash out the hemoglobin and then you end up with this empty vesicle. And that's what we call ghosts. We call them red, like blood ghosts. Because they also have a white color in the end. So and look nothing like red bloods. Like, yeah. Uh, so I'm curious. So are you doing this like one by one? Each blood cell gets a, a little bit of salt, let's say, to temporarily burst it. And then you clean it out one by one. Or is there... A, a more general process to make a lot of these cleaned blood cells. Oh, you would just have like your entire reaction tube and you would, you would just have an entire reaction going. And then at the end of it, you would have whatever concentration of the final red blood cell ghosts. Okay. So you aren't like under a microscope, just like very, very finely. No, no, no. Altering <laughs> each blood cell. Okay. <laughs> This thing reminds of you know when you learn about when uh, why freshwater fish can live in seawater because there's a, a salt is actually it's like osmotic pressure and just burst their cells. I think it's probably a similar process. The um yeah, so I guess it makes it makes a lot of sense then to use these red blood cells and then hollow them out and stuff. I, I imagine maybe I'm wrong, but I imagine other people have tried to make, I guess, make their own carriers or other methods to get things through the blood brain barrier. Um, I'm not sure if you can comment if that's been done or if you, have you even tried it yourself or. Um, yeah. So this whole field of drug delivery, it's very, um, it's very broad. People are doing so many different types of things. And um, specifically with like nanoparticles, different types of nanocarriers. And um, I mean, they all have like different pros and cons. Um, one of the major limitations with a lot of nanocarriers is biocompatibility, which means that if you were to inject different types of nanoparticles that are made from synthetic materials, the, body, the body's immune system would immediately recognize that and then it would degrade rapidly. Um, and so with us, the idea of using, you know, um, the red blood cells, that it comes from us and um, red blood cells also have proteins on the outside that sort of serve as don't eat me signals from the immune system. And, um, and, and by keeping those, we then increase or I guess preserve the biocompatibility and then these drugs can survive for longer, long enough to reach the target. Yeah, because I've heard of the other methods like a little bit before with nanoparticles and things. And I'm wondering, like, maybe there's other parts of the body that you deliver things to with blood cells. I guess the, the blood brain barrier is a big, like a really important one because, you know, you, you are your brain, I guess. <laughs> it's a very important organ. Um, but yeah, I, I, maybe it could be used for other things. I'm not sure. I mean, who knows? I mean, you could technically use like any target that you kind of want as long as the key is having um some type of targeting molecule on the outside that interacts like specifically with your target cell mm. i feel like these are 
a lot of like chemistry that you have figured out at because I feel like these are so much like a chemistry project trying to adhere things to something like it was like okay this is a very um a little far off but like plating for example um when you try to plate metal and stuff you want it to stick and back in the day Richard Feynman figured out how to do a lot of the chemical process people use to plate. It sounds really fami uh, familiar because maybe you want to coat certain cells with certain thing or um, make it adhere to one material but not the other. And that has a lot of chemistry involved. No, definitely. I mean, when you're trying to find how you're going to um, get specificity, of course, you have to look at your target, um, your target cell, target point, and see kind of like what molecules are more abundant here um, such that um, I have a higher chance of getting to that specific target. So yeah, there is a lot of chemistry. Nice. So I think it's oh, time wait, to wait, move. Wait, wait. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have, I have, this is the moving on question. Don't worry. So, the, so your secondary project that you've recently started, I have to ask you about it. Oh. It would be a great shame if I didn't. <laughs> Um, so you have a secondary project going on with McMaster's uh, Planetary Simulator, which is something I've heard about, but I don't know too much about. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about that project. Yeah, so um, I guess I'll start. By, um, our lab is also home, part of the Origins of Life Institute. So um, some of the people in our lab are, are more focused on origin stuff. And we also have the world's very own uh, planetary simulator. It's essentially this giant um, apparatus with a chamber inside, and we can control different parameters such as pressure, humidity, temperature. We can expose it to um, different uh, types of wavelengths, UV A to C, uh, visible light, white light. And uh, we can also uh, introduce different types of gases. And the idea is that you can mimic or simulate um, a particular atmosphere that you're interested in and put some system inside and see how it would respond to that atmosphere. Um, and so we recently started a collaboration with um, uh, people there from the States. And so they're interested in using uh, fungi to build different architecture and um, the idea is that you can have, um, you can, there are certain types of, well, fungal mycelia. You can use fungal mycelia to mold into different types of architecture, which can be used to build, you know, furniture. But a lot of people are, the end goal is to send this into space. So building architecture for, you know, the moon or Mars. And so what we do is that we're really testing how these materials respond different types of um, atmospheres so yeah so you send some astronauts to mars or some planet somewhere and instead of having to ship you know get an ikea rocket and ship all their furniture and a fresh house to mars they can just bring a big box of uh, fungi powder or in some form and you can grow kind of like an environment to live in there using that which is or I guess like, you know, you can grow bricks and then build a house out of it and things. And that's a long ways away, I think. But I, I've heard of that in like sci-fi before. It's not this 
it's one of these cool things where sci-fi came up with it and years later scientists are like oh maybe we can actually do that yeah i mean the idea is i mean i guess if you're going to send it off planet uh you can essentially just grow your own building materials uh you would have to send it off with of course something for it to feed on and then you just have some supply of building material then i wonder if it's us colonizing a new planet or is, is the fungi is actually doing the thing <laughs> no. and we just we just it's a fungi world we're just living in it <laughs> that's good i think that's Another. all i think that's the case already but with like insects and things we're I more mean, like insects on the planet than anything else i mean we're gonna be gone at some point in the future and they're gonna stay because you know <laughs> anyways i'm gonna move on to more of uh, your life um, so, a little bit starting from the closest. So, what made you interested in biology or in this type of um, graduate school work or even undergraduate? Is it something that you has always been passionate about growing up? Um, yeah, so I guess I have a, a different kind of path to getting into physics grad school. So I did originally do my undergraduate in, I said, in cellular and molecular biology. I did, uh, like leaving high school, I did think that I was going to go to medical school. And so I was kind of on that track of taking, you know, all the biology, physiology courses. Um, and then um, over time, I mean, I think I got more interested in the underlying mechanisms that were involved in the different processes that I was learning. And I feel like um, I started taking more and more physics courses. So I took pretty much as many physics courses as I, as I could. And, um, and so I was kind of doing both at the same time. And then I met Michael at a conference, uh, my current PhD supervisor, and he was studying biophysics and I was just really interested in the work that he was doing so he was really trying to understand um, the underlying mechanisms of like the biological processes that we see and um, so yeah then after that I just joined his group well interesting because the biophysics in Canada is quite small compared to other fields but I remember going to the conference in the U.S. and biophysics is one of the biggest um, division or the feel in the U.S., but in Canada, it's, it's relatively small. But I think you got into it. But is that in the um, physics department or is, is it in the biology department? In the physics department. All right. Let's walk you down the memory lane a little bit. So you said you were kind of looking to get to med school back in the days, right? So what? Why was that? You know, there what? What sparked your interest in science and biology? Were you always curious since you were young, like, you know, since you were very little? Or is it more like it just, you got into high school and then it sparks on you? What was, what was that like? I think I was always very curious. Um, I mean, when I was a little kid, I was always very interested with nature and um learning and then of course in high school I started taking well I took all of the science courses and the math courses and I did I did yeah really good in all of them and then um I'm not sure I I I really I was interested in medicine 
but uh, at the same time, I don't know if maybe it was like because I was getting very good grades. A lot of people that have really good grades, everyone says that you should go to medical school. Um, but then I realized that that wasn't exactly the the right route for me. See, Liam, this is who you could have been if you go on the biology <laughs> path. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I'll I'll stick to my uh, my black holes and ultra cold <laughs> atoms, I guess. So I, I guess from what you said, the so math was never wasn't a problem for you um, growing up. Then, so I think that most when you go to physics, everybody kind of have to be able to do math to pretty good level, right? And so was it was it really encouraged at home to go into like um, scientific field, especially in like uh, physics and math? Um, like my family home. Sure. Oh, um, yes. I mean, no, they, my family moved here from Bosnia and stuff. So they really just wanted um, us to be able to do the best um, that we can. So they really just encouraged us in um, my sister and I in everything. So um, they would have been supportive regardless. God bless. <laughs> They're the real, the real ones. The real ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because like a graduate school is a long time, you know, um, because you normally maybe people finish high school and start working and then you can, or you can take undergrad and then you start working and then you do masters as one or two years you start working. And then people like us who decide to do PhD, you're like, well, it's four or five or six or up to 10 years. And it's quite a long time and to, to be in school. So that, that is quite a, I think dilemma for some people that wants to get to work. So I think I'm going to ask this question I ask every guest that about hopes and dreams. I know Liam told you about it. So what are your hopes and dreams? So what I mean is that it's not like, oh, who do you see yourself in 10 years? But what you, you see you being the you know, blood scientist or more like, uh, or just biology in general, you find yourself, you see yourself working for, let's say, um, a research center or more research base or more like academia based, like you want to be a prof. Um, where do you see yourself in the future? Um, I think that um, I see myself to continue on this research path. I really do love doing research and maybe it's just I'm in a really comfortable research group right now where my supervisor really allows me to really try whatever I want to really um, explore the questions that I have. And that's what I really like to do is like, if I have a question and just trying to figure it out and being creative, and I really enjoy that part about research. And so um, I see myself continuing this path. And I mean, probably eventually uh, end up in academia. I mean, I will continue in academia. So, so, so you, you want to continue in like blood research, or do you have other um, interests that you would like to actually like pursue? I feel like my research interests. I mean, I have a lot. Like as, um, we talked that there's a little bit more than blood going on. So I really do like this biophysics research. Um, um, getting into the origin stuff has also been a really cool experience. And so I'm going to see um, what comes out of that as well. 
Well, I feel like those origin of life stuff is like the cosmology of bio people. You know, it's 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 kind of wacky. You have models of what's going on, but nobody really know what's going on. We have some evidence of what happened, and it's literally like cosmology. It's like here, oh, maybe there's Big Bang. There's some evidence that points to it, but there's evidence that prokaryotes come from before eukaryotes, and and people make this logical connection. So this is very interesting. And I think it's the same for most of us where we get into a PhD and we see this huge wide world of research that we were not exposed to an undergraduate. And we talk to maybe experts in different fields and it's peak of interest in many, many projects and potential projects that sometimes is very difficult to choose. Yeah, because like once you start working on one thing, it starts branching off and you start seeing connections and you start realizing like, oh, I need to learn this to understand this. And then in that field, you notice, oh, there's this other thing that I I might be able to learn about. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of a lot of I find a lot of researchers just kind of they pick a topic and then they just go with the flow and their research goes in some direction. Yeah, and then a lot of times you can just like you might start off on like or you might diverge into like different research projects, but then you find connections between um, some of them. And so it can turn into another really cool story. So that's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I agree. A lot of techniques in science are quite similar. I was um, in, a, in a talk on in the math department that said like diseases and epibur epidermic and stuff and what they were doing the models essentially what my group of people would call simulated annealing without them even saying the word annealing but i look at the the slides like well that is simulated annealing but when i brought it i was like well i know what that that was i was like i guess it's a different field same technique so that's i see how your research for example use um um Molecular dynamics and such is 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 strikingly similar to what a lot of people do in let's say material science or the in the condensed matter people, right? And maybe the parameters are quite different, but essentially the code running similar thing, just different scale, different interaction, and you see a lot of those, which is quite nice. No, definitely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Hannah, for talking to us about all your very very interesting and very useful work it sounds like the blood brain barrier thing especially that that'd be a huge deal if you guys can work towards overcoming that um yeah i don't know i'm so used to my land of theory and black holes that it's like it's it's always so awesome hearing about like actual stuff that's gonna help people um but i'm i'm also quite content to just understand things uh but yeah, anyway, thank you very much. That was awesome. Um, before we wrap up the episode with a story, which I will be giving about the circulatory system, um, I don't know if it's so much a story as it is some quick facts about the circulatory system. But before then, um, Patrick, you have something to say. I do indeed have something to say, and that is on how to contact us and find us. So... We are very happy to have Hannah on as a guest for this episode. And if you would like to be a guest on any episode in the future, we would love to have you on if you're an expert in your area. If you would like to content, contact us, we have a few different ways in which you can reach out to us. The first being our Gmail account, 
So you can send us an email. We are hyperthesispodcast at gmail.com. You can ask questions, you can provide comments and feedback about the episodes, or you can let us know that you are interested in being a guest on our show, and you can talk about whatever field of science you would like. We have a biophysicist on today, and that's super cool. Uh, I don't think any of us have even delved into biophysics, so it's always fun having Hannah on and different people on to talk about their really cool research. We also have Instagram. We are at the hyperthesis. We post updates about when we are posting episodes as well as some other fun stuff like memes. We don't have a um any kind of mascot, but Hannah, I understand that one way to reach you does feature a mascot. Oh yes. Uh yes, so our lab has a Instagram page and we're always posting fun things, uh, whether it's us doing stuff in the lab, but more importantly, it features our lab mascot, which is a paper mache Patrick, um, who is one of our best students, always doing stuff in the lab. Yeah. Pa- Patrick Starr, to clarify, yeah. not, it, not it's Patrick. Not me. Yeah, not this Patrick. <laughs> Patrick Starr from SpongeBob. Oh, and he's my favorite. Oh, and that Instagram handle is Chronicles of a Biophysicist. Yeah, so if you if you want to reach out to the lab, uh, reach out to at Chronicles of a Biophysicist. And if people have questions for you, Hannah, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, probably by email. Oh, and uh, so my email is just krivikh at mcmaster.ca which can also Perfect. be found on the DNA or physics and astronomy website for grad students. And we will also have it linked in the episode description. Uh, finally, if you would like to listen to us, which congratulations, you found us, you're listening to us now, but we have a YouTube channel where we are now updating with uh, our latest season episodes, thanks to Feely. So you can leave a like, comment, subscribe. Uh, you can share us through YouTube and you can also find us wherever you find your podcasts whether it be through Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Audible apparently has podcasts, Spotify, that's where we're based out of. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. And again, if you'd like to contact Hannah with any questions, that's uh, krivichh at mcmaster.ca. And again, we'll post those details in the description. Awesome. Thank you so much, Patrick. And thanks again, Hannah, for telling us about your awesome research. No, thank you for having me on. It was so much fun. Now that I now when I run into in the halls, I will actually know what you're up to now. <laughs> um, carrying your samples everywhere. Um, but before the episode ends, I wanted to quickly talk about some aspects of the circulatory system, since blood is an important thing in your research. Um, and there's a lot I could talk about, but I won't and can't because one uh, time constraints and two. My complete lack of understanding. Uh, I'm not a biologist. I do not study the human body. Uh, well, I felt the same way when uh, I was chatting with my friend back home, who is a surgeon now, and we just talked about how he patched up at like aorta for half an hour, and he went into a lot of details and stuff. And sometimes I felt like, you know what? It reminded me of a certain thing, but he explained it well, right? But I was like, wow, there's so much I don't know about. Let's say just one. <laughs> one piece of the this complex complicated puzzle and but he was just figured it out show it to me how exactly 
how you patch aorta if it's ruptured. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, science has come a long way, but turns out we still don't know a lot. We don't know a lot about the brain. We don't know a lot about our own bodies. We don't know a lot about the ocean, about the atmosphere, about space. Whatever you can think of, we probably don't know a lot about it. Um, so we're working on it, but you know, we got our work cut out for us as scientists. Um, so I just wanted to quickly kind of talk about the circulatory system a little bit. I'll, I'll give it my best shot to give this basic, very, very basic summary. Um, so the circulatory system of the human body, it's, it's a system of organs, which includes the heart, blood vessels, and the blood itself, which is circulated throughout the entire human body. The blood carries nutrients, um, between these various parts of the body, allowing us to function and survive. So if your brain got no blood or nutrients, for example, it has no fuel, can't run. Like I said, you are a brain, uh, and you would not survive without, without these nutrients. The, the circulatory system, it's closed in the sense that the blood is contained uh, within the network. Um, ideally, blood, blood is not entering or leaving you very often. Um, if you lose a lot of blood, you can have health problems and die. But if you lose a small amount of blood, uh, you can reproduce it. So when Hannah takes some of her blood for her experiments, it replenishes or else she'd only be able to do so many experiments. Um, additionally, there's the lymphatic system, which is this important open subsystem of the circulatory system, which consists of this network of lymphatic vessels, lymph nodes, organs, tissues, and circulating lymph. So the, the actual, I think it's this fluid, uh, it's called lymph. And lymph functions to carry excess plasma away into the lymphatic ducts back to the heart um, for return to the circulatory system. Another major function of lymph is working together with the immune system to provide defense against pathogens. So this lymphatic subsystem is very essential for the functioning of the blood circulatory system um, because without it, the blood would actually become depleted of fluid. Coming back to blood a bit more, I'm stepping away from lymph. Blood, the blood that's in you, it's circulated throughout your body via arteries, veins, and capillaries. Uh, and the large arteries and veins that take the blood to and away from the heart, so the heart's big pump that pumps them around, um, they're known as the great vessels and by some people, maybe other people, they have different names. So the heart pumping all the blood around your body to all the parts in your body, um, it has different parts. So the left side of your heart, um, I didn't actually double check if this is left if from my point of view or left if you're facing me. So this needs a citation and a fact check. But from some point of view, the left side of your heart um, it pumps this oxygenated blood. Um, it pumps oxygenated blood from the, the, the lungs, supply it with oxygen. It pumps that blood um, to the rest of your body in what's called the systemic circulation. Oh, sorry, Patrick. It is your left side. So it's my left your or your left? Your left. So, like, okay. if you were to look down on your body, it's the left side of your heart. Yeah. Yes. So. Some people, it's called the left heart or the left side of the heart. Um, this left heart, it pumps oxygenated blood that's returned from the lungs to the rest of the body in this systemic circulation. And the right heart, so the right from my point of view, um, pumps this, de this 
now deoxygenated blood to the lungs uh, to get re-oxygenated in what's called the pulmonary. Pulmonary circulation. The human heart, so there's one uh, what's called an atrium chamber and one ventricle chamber for each of these circulations. So in total, um, with these two circulations, you now have four chambers in your heart. You have a left atrium, a left ventricle, a right atrium, and a left ventricle. And each of these chambers plays a specific role in their respective circulations. There's various other circulations that I didn't mention, um, but are important. And one of them being the cerebral circulation. So the brain actually has a double blood supply, an interior and a posterior circulation. So a, a, um, a front and a back. Um, and the neurovascular unit. So I don't, again, this is stuff I actually don't know very much about. Um, but the neurovascular u- unit, which is composed of various cells and vascular channels within the brain, is what regulates the flow of blood to activate neurons in order to satisfy their high energy demands and allow the brain to function. Uh, turns out the brain is very uh, energy inefficient out of en- any organ. It uses most of the body's energy. Um, well, I don't want to say most, but per organ, it's the most intensive. I think it uses around 20% of the body's total energy. Um, other organs do not use that much. So thinking takes a lot of energy, it turns out. Um, a bit of history, just a tiny amount, is that the earliest known history of the circulatory system is an ancient Egyptian medical papyrus um, from the 16th century BCE, which contains over 700 phys- physical and spiritual prescriptions and remedies. And in that papyrus, it actually discusses the connection between the heart and arteries and how it, the Egyptians during that time. I believe that through air, or sorry, that the air that came uh, into their body through their mouth was distributed to their lungs and heart, and from the heart, the air traveled to every um, organ through their arteries. Uh, So although this concept of the circulatory system was only partially correct and had some flaws, it was pretty impressive for the time, and they kind of got the gist of it. Um, The blood, the air enters you, goes into your lung, uh, goes into your heart, and then the oxygen goes into your blood and the blood goes around you. So they, they missed the blood step, but they were pretty close. Well, they also so, missed the oxygen part. Yes, well, air, oxygen, you know, back then they were the same thing. Uh, so the Egyptians were pretty smart. They really knew human bodies. I mean, they did all this wild stuff when they created mummies and things. They took organs out of people's, took their brains out of their nose and preserved their organs. So. They had to understand the body fairly well to do that kind of stuff. Um, but since then, our knowledge of the human body and circulatory system in particular has really improved and come a long way. But as we heard today, there's still many things we don't know about it uh, and are continuing to research and discover. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you again, Hannah, for joining us and telling us about your work. Uh, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you, Hannah. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. Bye, everyone. Bye.